my grandpa's grandpa, who was a sorcerer, was met by the Lord in a very miraculous situation. Uh, he was a sorcerer and he was dealing with a lot of demon spirits and one of them got out of hand and he was very worried that the spirit might come back and attack him. And it was at that point in time that he ran into a Christian evangelist. This would have been in the mid 1800s. Hi and welcome to Mid-South Viewpoint. I'm Byron Tyler. Today we're coming to you from the 2023 PCA Presbyterian Churches in America General Assembly, downtown Memphis. We're meeting various ministries and pastors from all across not only the United States, but from across the world. Right now, Ed Raju. Ed has ministered in India for many years, and I want people to get to know Ed. Your story, where you grew up, something about your family. Did you grow up in a Christian home? Was there another religious belief as growing up as a child? My forefathers accepted the Lord. My grandpa's grandpa, who was a sorcerer, was met by the Lord in a very miraculous situation. Uh, he was a sorcerer and he was dealing with a lot of demon spirits and one of them got out of hand and he was very worried that the spirit might come back and attack him. And it was at that point in time that he ran into a Christian evangelist. This would have been in the mid 1800s. This Christian evangelist prayed for him and told him about Jesus, who is the power over all powers. And this man trusted that and nothing harmful happened to him. So he began to follow Jesus. So from then on, my grandpa's grandpa's time <laughs> onwards, we've been Christians. Oh. And I was born to Christian parents, even though my parents were godly and took me to church regularly. And I had to say my prayers every day growing up, you know, even read the Bible and had family devotions, etc. I wasn't necessarily a Christian until age 19. At that point, I had a very definite encounter with Jesus. Jesus spoke to me from God's word and he said that my heart was not with him. I understood, especially from Psalm 66 verse 18, which says, if I had in cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have heard my prayer. God used that verse to help me to understand that my heart was sinful. Although I was a church-going Christian, uh, although I read my Bible pretty regularly, I had not turned over my life to Jesus. Uh, and it was only after I understood Psalm 66 verse 18, which talked about the condition of my heart, which is sinful, I said, Lord, I surrender my heart to you. I was saved. I was born again. <laughs> Amen. And I love that. And you know, for many, they haven't made the connection yet. Sometimes we look at a matter of works or effort, good moral behavior, good works, thinking that at the end, our good works are going to outweigh the bad works. And so God would allow us to come into his heaven. But that's not the case. Yes. If that was the case, Jesus would not have died. Yes. God takes sin seriously. Yes. And yes. we should too. Yes. And oftentimes we try to cover our sin. Yes. And the only thing that can truly cover our sin in God's sight is yes. the blood of his son, Jesus. Yeah. Before I surrendered my heart to Jesus based on Psalm 66 verse 18, I had actually tried many different ways to be a religious person. At one time I said, okay, I'm listening to all these secular songs. I don't want to listen to them anymore. 
And at one time I said, reading more Bible, more Bible would get me close to God. And so I would race through 30, 40 chapters every day. My intention was to get God's attention. You see, I had started being some kind of a seeker. You know, I wanted God's attention, but I tried my own ways. And I even stopped eating meat. I said, I want to cut out everything that brings me pleasure. So I wasn't eating meat. I wasn't listening to secular songs. And I was reading 30, 40 chapters of the scripture every day, whether I understood anything or not. And it was one of those days that this verse, Psalm 66, verse 18, popped up. I had even started to pray, you know, I was praying. So there was some sincere effort on my part through works to get closer to God. Uh, I don't know why exactly I did all those things, but um, there was definitely uh, the work of God in my heart, you know, before I made that final commitment. But this verse really sealed the deal. You know, God said, this is what it is. Unless you surrender your heart to me, which is sinful, you, you cannot really be my child. You cannot walk with me. Yes. So I believe... Uh, it was not because of my intelligence or anything. I believe it was the Holy Spirit moment. And the Holy Spirit helped me to understand that verse to me, that my heart was sinful and that unless I surrendered my heart to Jesus, I, I wouldn't even begin to walk with Jesus. Yes, amen. Praise the Lord. Hey, praise God for that. <laughs> Ed, I love that story. Uh, let's talk about the vast, complicated continent of India. Uh, yeah. Because we're looking at multi-cultures, people groups. I mean, you can drive from one area within just a few hours and, and reach a totally different culture, yes. language. Yes. And, and, and so I, I just, I remember when I was in Bible college in our missions class, I'm trying to remember the, the population total of India at that time, because we're talking back in the, the early 1980s when that was. And uh -huh. I'm trying to remember the population, but I know since then the population has grown you know, dramatically. Yes. Population-wise, 1.4 billion, which makes us the most populous country in the world. We just got past China this year. Wow. We just got past China. And India is very diverse. 2,500 plus ethnic groups, 1,652 different languages and dialects. We have all kinds of races. We have Aryans, we have Australites, we have Mongolians, we have Dravidians. Uh, I believe, uh, you know, because of all these languages, we have 1,652. I believe Babel was in India. <laughs> you know, oh my. It, it's a very complicated situation. Can you kind of discuss a little about the pantheist? belief in God, multi-gods, and it, can, can we talk a little bit about that? Because there is, multi-gods are worshipped yes. throughout India. Is that correct? Am yes, I being correct? 33 million of them, whoa, they whoa, say. Whoa. Did you say how many? 33 million oh, and counting. Uh, actually, there is no number. You know, what they mean to say is that innumerable gods, you know, you cannot really count. Uh, there are millions and millions of them. Because uh, Hinduism is basically a pantheistic religion. And so, um, you know, they see God in everything. They see God in everything. And that's the reason why uh, there are so many 
thousands or millions of gods being worshipped. Right. Yes. Well, what about, and talk about the caste system today. Now, is the caste system still an issue today, maybe compared to, say, 50 years ago? Yes, it is very much. Very, very much. Uh, Explain the, that a little bit yeah, to our American listeners. Yeah. You know, I think roughly 3,000 years ago, uh, Hinduism came up with this, uh, uh, what a caste system, what a, <clears throat> based on a certain code, they call it Code of Manu, and that was when they actually categorized uh, the community. Basically, uh, four different communities, uh, basically four different communities, uh, the Brahmins, and then the who are the priestly class, the Kshatriyas, who are the warrior ruling class, and the Baniyas, uh, who are basically the um, business class, and then the Shudras, uh, who are workmen, you know, all the artisans, uh, skilled workers, as well as uh, non-skilled workers belong in there. And so uh, there are, again, hundreds and hundreds of categories uh, under each one of these four categories, subcasts. Uh, and then they drew a line after these, below these four categories, and they said that everybody, everybody that's below this line would be considered an outcast. So we have a little more than 100 million Indians even today who belong in that outcast box. And, and then other religious groups as well. You know, for example, there's no caste system in Christianity. And so if a Hindu becomes a Christian, uh, according to their system, the, he loses his caste and he drops into the outcast box. Uh, and that's what happened to my family. You know, they said that my family belonged to the Kshatriya group, which is uh, that, uh, the second from the top. But then when they got converted, they dropped into the outcast box. And so once you're in the outcast box, is there any way to, to get out of the outcast box? No, that's your DNA. The, you don't ever, you, you can become a billionaire, you can become a doctor or an attorney or whatever, politician, even president. Today, our president, uh, a lady uh, by name Draupati, uh, she is from uh, a tribal background and uh, being a tribal person, she would belong in that outcast box. But she is president. So uh, that's a change that has taken place. You know, uh, people, you know, that belong to these four different categories I mentioned earlier and people that belong to the outcast box, they all can have as opportunities present themselves, receive education and you know get a job and become rich, whatever, uh, and move up the ladder economically, but that doesn't actually take away from them the DNA, which is that their caste identity and they belong in that forever. And so what are some of the limitations in daily life? So if I was Hindu and I converted to Christianity and I become in this outcast, as you say, what am I going to expect happen to me on a daily basis? Uh, one of the limitations can be that you cannot marry outside of your caste. You, you marry someone that is within your caste. Now, as long as you belong to the outcast box or one of the lower categories, Shudra box, it's not a big deal if you pick somebody from another caste. That is at your level. But it would be a problem if a Shudra guy picked a girl from 
the Brahmin caste group or a Kshatriya caste group, then her family would not like it. There have been honor killings and they continue to happen even in this day and age. Especially marriage is a very sensitive thing. As you know, we still do arranged marriages and being a part of your caste and upholding the dignity of your caste is, is very important. So your parents and your relatives will be very offended if you use your right to pick a girl or a boy from any other caste group. That's one of the major problems. Uh, belonging to a lower caste group does not necessarily you know, affect your job situation. You know, if you're qualified enough, if you're a doctor, then you get a doctor's job, no right. problem. If you're able to make money, you become a wealthy person, no problem. One of the other things that is a problem is social interaction. Brahmin person would not necessarily be socializing with a person from one of the lower categories freely. Of course, you know, in, in these days, uh, if you're working with a company and you have colleagues that are from any of the other lower categories, you might sit together with them and, you know, talk with them and even have coffee with them. But you would not necessarily become the friend and go to their house. Right. And yeah. there are always exceptions. Right. You know, I've had Brahmin friends that have come to my house and have had meals and I've had meals in their house, but that's not normal. As we look at the church today in India, we hear reports through Voice of the Martyr and other organizations about the persecution. Am I mistaken by saying that many, of course, there's believers in Jesus Christ throughout India and providences and areas and regions throughout, but Primarily, more would be found in the southern part of India. Is that correct? Yes. The Bible Belt is actually in the south. In one particular southern state called Kerala, 18% of the population would be Christian. And in, in my state where I'm from, 6% of the population would be Christian. That makes us the Bible Belt because if you start going across central India and northern India, you see... 1% uh, Christianity or one quarter of 1% Christianity in some of the states. There are so many states, 13, 14, 15 different states up north that have less than half a percent of Christianity. place like Gujarat, where we know that being a Christian can be more difficult. Yes, there are some states where there's more persecution. Persecution is widespread these days, varies only in degrees. Uh, as you go to different parts of India. Uh, but definitely Gujarat would be one of the most persecuted states in India. What levels of persecution? Just ostracized for your belief, not allowed to get certain jobs, all the above? Is death part of the persecution? Opposition to preaching the gospel in many, many places, I would say almost everywhere. There was a time when you could go into a village and pass out gospel tracts and you could meet with people and talk about Jesus and evangelize. But now in at least seven out of 10 villages, there would be various degrees of uh, opposition. They might say, shut up and go, or they might try to manhandle you. Or in some places, they might even tie you to a tree and beat you. Just last year, 2022, April, one of our pastors died succumbing to the brutal attacks that he sustained while evangelizing a certain village. 
two months ago, six of our pastors were in prison. And even now, as I'm talking to you, one of our pastors is in prison. So right now, there's a lot of persecution. Yes. More than you want to know. We have the, according to Open Doors Ministry, we are, I think, the 11th most persecuted country in the world. Ed, can you give us a basic overview without giving too many details of the specific work that you do, or kind of look at the work that you do to get the gospel to the people of India, to encourage pastors? I mean, can you give us a little bit of insight into what that looks like? That's right. Yeah, I'm excited. Our ministry is definitely seeing the work of God all across India. We work in 26 different states of India. Uh, Now, I must say this right at the outset. We work with native, independent, self-supporting pastors primarily. Now, I must explain this a little bit. In the last 30 years, the mission scenario in India has radically changed. Time was missionaries were being sent from the Bible Belt of India into cross-cultural situations and the churches in the South would basically support them. Now, that situation has actually changed. Uh, There are no more, if anything, fewer missionaries going from the Bible Belt to different unreached parts of India. But God never runs out of ideas, does he? (laughs) And so he has raised all across the states of India, the 29 states, all across the states of India, he has raised first-generation Christians who are not willing to stop talking about Jesus. And so without even meaning to start churches, they start churches because they're talking to their family members, Kitten Kin, fellow villagers, and before they know it, there are 20, 30 people that are following the Lord. And just because you did the mistake of not stopping to talk about Jesus, they look up to you for spiritual leadership. And so this guy who is a blacksmith or carpenter or a farmer ends up becoming a, a pastor. No training, not even basic uh, secular education, but now he's a pastor in his own right because he has 20 people that he led to the Lord just by talking about Jesus. That's a reality all across uh, the 29 states of India. Now, prior to 2006, I was working with three different organizations and uh, we did the conventional method of missions. You know, we recruited young people, trained them and sent them, supported them the salary. But in 2006, the Lord gave me this vision to come alongside native, independent, self-supporting pastors by doing two things. First of all, offer them solid training in the Bible by sending trainers to right where they are. So they don't have to leave their homes and their existing ministries and go to a Bible school and uh, spend three or four years uh, at a Bible school. We send out trainers to write where they are. So in real terms, this is what we do. In any given area, we do a survey and find out we have to beat the bushes and get out these native Indian independent pastors, self-supporting pastors, and offer to them training. And if they say yes, we form a cohort of 20 pastors, and I send out a trainer who goes and lives among them for five years and trains them in the Bible. We have a curriculum that we have borrowed from a certain organization, and it's a great curriculum. It's being, they say it's being used in 44 different countries of the world. I don't want to mention the name. They may not need publicity or appreciate publicity at this time. And so we train these 20 men for five years. Now, in return for the free training we offer to them for five years, we ask each of them to adopt five villages right around where they live and work in those villages all through the five years while we are training them. That's a practicum part of the training and plant churches in them. 
and the understanding with them right up front is that they get to keep the churches that they plant. So five years later, we graduate them, give them a degree, and we move on. By then, they will have been strongly rooted and grounded in God's Word, uh, A, and B, they would have expanded or grown their ministry to where now they have three or four or five congregations in as many villages, and when they have 70, 80, uh, or 100 more people, not huge congregations, <laughs> they can have more community, which is very helpful in many different ways, definitely financially as well. More tithes and offerings, and so this pastor can be better self-supported. So I started with 42 pastors in 2006, and as of now, we have 17,678 oh, pastors. Wait a minute. You started with 40, and now you're over 17,000. Yes, sir. Praise and God. And I'm going towards this target of 20,000 pastors. God gave me a vision for 20,000 pastors. And so I'm going towards that. And God helping this year, we are on course for recruiting the remaining pastors, number of pastors. I believe by December this year, we will have gone past the finishing line. Ed, how do you have faith to do great things for God? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not one of those giants of faith. As a matter of fact, when the Lord impressed this vision upon my heart in 2006, while I was in the midst of a private time of prayer, I began to tremble. I made more excuses than Moses and said, Lord, send somebody else. I literally said that because on the one hand, it was exciting to realize that God was going to use me in a bigger way and in a mighty way. And I understood that God was able to do that. But on, on the other hand, I said, who is me, Lord? Who am I? How can I do this? Uh, and so it's been definitely uh, a huge learning curve. And God has taught me lessons in faith. And the first seven years were not really, really great. Only in the eighth year, we began to experience this tipping point. And, so, and what was the tipping point? What do you feel like the turning point was after that? Uh, there was year? a need because of not having enough finances. There was a need for tweaking the strategy, which I thought at the time, I thought was unfortunate because we did what we did because money wasn't flowing in as expected. But I think God did that on purpose. For example, we thought that everybody that we trained, brought on board and trained, we would, out of respect for who they were, we would give them a little money to help them to do the ministry that we were expecting them to do. You know, we were expecting every pastor to adopt five villages and plant five churches. So we thought, okay, we'll take care of the traveling expenses. But then, you know, more and more pastors that had heard about our training, the value of our training, started to knock on our door, and we just couldn't raise sponsorships fast enough to accommodate all the others that were knocking on the door. And so at one point, you know, when we said to a group of pastors, we don't have money, sponsorship to start training you, they said, forget the money, just train us. Don't give us any stipend or anything. We'll take care of our own expenses. And that was when, in that year of 2013, from 95 pastors per year, we jumped to 885 pastors. So I'm not paying the salaries of the 17,000. Yeah, half of them are now not receiving salaries, the little stipend that we make available when they come for training. And I do that because I, I believe in blessing these poor pastors who are 
living below the poverty line, most of them. You yes. know, some may be barely above the poverty line. Asking them to do this extra work of going to five villages and plant five churches, you know, they could use some money for their gas, you know, motor scooter or whatever, or public transportation. But even now, we are able to support in this manner only a half of the 17,678. The others are <laughs> receiving training and doing the work regardless of the fact that they are not able to receive any financial help from us. And Ed, we can't even get Christians to go to church on Sunday when it rains in America. <laughs> <laughs> oh my, praise God for this story and this ministry. How can our listeners pray for you? Is there a way for people to contribute, make a contribution to the ministry? Yes. I would first of all ask the listeners to pray for us. More than you want to know, Indian Christians are facing severe persecution all the ministries working in India would uh, tell you about that. And so please pray. I'm not asking that persecution would stop. Pray that we would be faithful. This is how I tell people who ask about persecution with a lot of concern. You know, if we were sitting pretty and doing nothing, there would be no persecution. There is persecution because we are working, working hard, sticking our necks out, and we don't want to put an end to that. We want to continue to be faithful. We want to continue to work, but please pray that we will be faithful. And number two, please pray that our ministry will continue to come alongside more and more and more uh, native pastors that need training. That's one need I see everywhere. Going forward, we would like to even come up with a strategy to offer training even to the the new believers that these pastors have brought on board. We do encourage the pastors to train their believers, mm -hmm. but then, you know, they need curriculum and curriculum that they can benefit from. So going forward, you know, we are seriously thinking about investing our time and finances and our energies in that area. So please pray that it'll be possible to train the new believers. I want to say off the top of my head that in the last 17 years, our pastors may have brought on board not less than 300,000 new believers. Please continue to pray that we'll be faithful and we'll be effective uh, as the Lord continues to go before us in this ministry. Amen. Ed Raju, God bless you, my dear brother. Thank you for what you're allowing Christ to do in and through you for his kingdom, for his glory, for the people of India, that the gospel may spread and lives will be changed for his glory. God bless you, my brother. Thank you very much, very much. Thank you, God bless you. Well, friends, that's all the time we have on this edition of Mid-South Viewpoint. Thanks for stopping by. I'm Byron Tyler here at the PCA Presbyterian Church's in America 2023 General Assembly meeting at the Renaissance Center in downtown Memphis. Appreciate you stopping by. I'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Mid-South Viewpoint. The show is archived for on-demand listening on our website at botradionetwork.com or via your favorite podcast platform. Stay tuned to Bot Radio Network to fill your day with God's Word.